Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes David Page. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. When today's guest was a kid, he didn't spend time climbing trees. He spent time absorbing, learning, and ultimately becoming a product of his environment, the recording studio, and the performing stage. His father, a legendary composer and arranger, introduced him early to his world of creating and arranging music. He eventually found over the years that his phenomenal music skill would allow him to become one of the most sought-after session musicians, producers, composers, and arrangers in the music business. As a founder of the Grammy award-winning band Toto, he has toured the globe performing to a worldwide fan base that literally boggles the mind. His discography is also quite global, meaning that it could probably wrap around the world a few times. He's played with the best, including George Benson, Jackson Brown, Ray Charles, the Doobie Brothers, Aretha Franklin, Michael Jackson, Elton John, Quincy Jones, Boz Skaggs, Steely Dan, and so many more. Our guest today is the very talented David Page. David, welcome to Inside Music Cast. Hey, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Hey, David, let's start things off by talking about your latest uh, CD, Falling In Between. It was released earlier this year, and I just wanted to find out how things are going. I mean, how are sales going so far, and, and has it been as successful as you had hoped? It's been very well received, man. The Fib album, we were just, uh, you know, we really put our, our sweat, our blood, sweat, and tears into this one here, and, and I think it sold over the 200,000 mark. Mm-hmm. I mean, and for a, for a Toto, I mean, this is our like this is our first thing with our own record company uh-huh. here, right? And that's just your that's just outside the United States. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's just distribution, us distributing our own thing. So the sales, I haven't even checked the sales lately because the guys have just been running through the country here, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, we've been uh, knock on wood, we're doing okay, and hopefully uh, it's gaining even more momentum here. You know? Well, 200,000 outside of the states, but how's it doing here at home? Uh, you know, it's gaining momentum. Here's the, what I just found out from Red Eye, our distributors here. We've passed where our last sales was when we were with a record company, which was Columbia Records. Mm-hmm, okay? right. So as an independent here, we've passed sales with that. I think we've probably done, I don't know, it's hard to say now, maybe ten or 20,000 records here. Okay. But it's hard in the United States because we're, that's the tours and the promo has just started, I mean, in the last four or five months on here. So it's basically still new here, you know. And Toto will be touring probably for the next year uh, all over the world and the states because we're kind of rebuilding in the United States here. So we're also digitally downloading to our website. So yeah. it's really hard to tell you how you're doing in the United States because uh, people are buying from our website also. That's true. Yeah. Well, isn't that typically how it does with launches of, of new new projects? It's They're pretty much launched staggeredly, right? Globally, really. Yeah, they are. That's what we did. We made sure that we had our rights here for the mm-hmm. United States and our digital rights here in the uh, Total because we're totally self-funded by the guys in the band. It's a really labor of love. Yeah. We don't have these huge promotional budgets that they do to launch these big uh, franchise acts. So we're just musicians, hand to mouth. You know what I mean? We'll the guys will make some money. And we'll go. Okay, we can spend some more money promoting ourselves. Sure. Here, you know? But it is our product, and no one tells us what to do when we make it. That's nice. Here on there, we don't have. We're our producers. We write everything, produce everything, and we recorded everything. Actually, Simon Phillips recorded most. Right. Of it. Right. Great engineer. 
and we just were working out of like a an old funky studio in Van Nuys, where we began in the Valley. Because <laughs> Toto was originally just a Valley band playing uh, at Grant High School, right. in a Valley College. So we're kind of uh, done a three sixty here, you know. You know what I was really pleased to see as a fan is is uh, some of the TV time you got on uh, Regis and Kelly and uh, oh yeah, and what was it extra I believe? Oh yeah, well we got a. Oh, this, I have a friend of mine that lives down the street named John Wolfson. Who handles like uh, he handles Hall of Notes, but he also handles like all the rip rappers, Suge Knight, and stuff like that. Right. And we were just talking, and he just said, "You know, you know, you me, let me handle Total for six months here." You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we haven't had any TV exposure, literally, at least right. positive TV exposure, and PR for a long time. And he's the guy. He picked up the phone and got Regis, and got Extra, and got uh, CNN, and all this stuff. You know, isn't yeah. that amazing? Sometimes all it takes is a phone call. All it takes is, you know what I mean, a little push, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, Dave, you actually finally got the, let's just call it the, the record label monkey off you guys back. And yeah. This was, I mean, you're saying creatively that was pretty liberating, but... Uh, well, not so much liberating creatively, but just when you first get signed to an, uh, a label, they're very excited about you. They put a lot of money into, yeah. and they're courting you, and they're waiting and dining you. Mm-hmm. Well, after you've sold 20 million records for them, <laughs> and the numbers have changed, they, you know, you're not the flavor of the month, and... And Columbia has a way of changing, uh, excuse me, Sony has a way of changing its presidents in the United States. Like, band members change their socks and underwear on the mm-hmm. road, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, if you go to A&M, that was Herb Alpert for years. Absolutely. Right. Uh, Warner right. Brothers, Bo Austin was there 40 years, okay? Right. I mean, every two years, uh, there was a new president at Sony, you know? It started with Bruce Lundvall, who was a great president and was a tenor saxophone player. He signed Toto, and he hired me to do Got to Be Real for Cheryl Lynn at the same time. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. So we were doing that, and he's still working. I mean, he did the Nora Jones album with Arif. God bless Arif, who just passed. Right. He will be uh, one of our brothers forever. He produced uh, Lady Love Me that I wrote with James Howard. Jeff was on it, and uh, Luke and me. So that's another Toto thing there. Mm-hmm. And then they just start changing presidents and changing presidents. I mean, when we had, in 1988, when we had uh, uh, Pamela out there, I mean, we were like number 15 with a bullet. This was going all the way. We had 283 radio stations. We were we were a week away from entering the top 10, and they let uh, go uh, the current president at that time and locked its doors, and Springsteen's record fell off the charts and ours fell off the charts. Amazing. And wow. we really, really lost our uh, enthusiasm for the big power structures. Here. So what you're really saying is when leadership like that at, at, a, at such a major label type of company, yeah. When that changes the very top, I mean, it changes us to the the savor and the what they attract and really what they promote, right? That's you bet. Completely, you know, it's a know, flavor that, of the month. That was devastating to us because that was like our comeback record since Total Four album. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're here. We finally nabbed us. This would have gone number one. Right. We had it right there. Like I said, for them to not have a system when you change the hierarchy, it does not affect the artist on there. That sure. record should have kept going to the top. And like I said, they've closed their doors. Shut luck, BlackRock in New York, yeah. and like I said, Bruce Springsteen's album fell off the charts. Lost its bullet, disappeared, and ours did too. Wow! I mean, in any other business except the music business, those persons would have been held accountable for that. You mm-hmm. know, in the music business, you could go to two other record companies and find the people that they let go running those companies. So, <laughs> in, the, in the record business, you don't get let go and then you're blacklisted. You just get circulated within the community to another record company. You know? Yeah, right. You mentioned a second ago, uh, it got to be real. Yes. Uh, the Cheryl Lynn song. That song is still everywhere. Yeah. It has such, it's had such great staying Isn't that power. a trip, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, you hear in a lot of, uh, a lot of soundtracks. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of promotions. They used it for Shark Tale. That's right. With yeah. uh, Will Smith <laughs> That's and Mary right. J. Uh-huh. And they used it for, like, Clairol commercials and, yeah. and all kinds of things. It's been really fun. That was a fun record to make with Ray Parker was on that and James Gadsden and David Shields and, uh, 
that was kind of the emotions uh, rhythm section. What what made that that cut so marketable, Dave? I think it was a combination of just kind of a simple groove dance yeah. thing. Yeah. It was the timing and, and the players that we had on it. And uh, I got a knock on wood. David Foster came in, and uh, he wrote that with me and Cheryl right on the spot. We were in Sunset One, and I had the riff down. Yeah. And Foster came in and sang the, what you think? And Cheryl did the answers. I mean, it was like we wrote it on the spot. Wow. <laughs> like that. So it was truly one of those capturing lightning in a bottle's magic ones. <laughs> it's been good to Foster and me and Cheryl. You know, we're very blessed. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you about Simon Phillips in his role of engineering and tracking this, yes. this last album. Did you feel that, you know, keeping the aspect of the creative process in the immediate family, did you feel that it gave you more creative freedom than if you were working like with an Elliot Shiner or somebody outside of the, out of the family? You know, that's a really good question. It's going to take me a second to answer because you picked two really good engineers there. Elliot Shiner is such a phenomenal uh, component mm-hmm. in recording and he has great musical ideas to bounce off of, and his engineering is so flawlessly impeccable mm-hmm. that it's just absolutely pristine and magical. The job of a good engineer is to make it so that musicians, we don't have to think about how it's being recorded. We just have to do the artistic part. Right. Or say, listen, put some special effects on it, put some magic dust on it here, right. you know. And they just do it. Or something. Yeah. So in those cases, I don't feel that there was any pluses or minuses. Maybe Simon, because Simon has a real gift for engineering, and he loves to organize things. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like a he's like anal about uh, spring cleaning and keeping all the records and books. And, and, <laughs> and you really need to be kind of a forensics specialist to do Pro Tools yeah. because there's so much logging and uh, archiving. So, uh, but I think Simon, uh, being a player, was able to. It really helped with his drum sounds because Simon knows how to mic his drums and how he's supposed to sound. Yeah, right. And it's always hardest to get the drum sounds, I think. Right. And oh, that's Simon true. was able to achieve those very quickly, and that saved us a lot of uh, time spent in the studio. Yeah, I, I can add to that, that uh, you know, the percussion, the miking on the drums, it was impeccable in this project. Yeah, and Simon's drums, I mean, that's no easy uh, kit to mic. I, we call it the uh, HMS Phillips, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's like the right. size of the Bismarck, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's got so many drums and so big and everything, you know. He's an amazing talent, though. He's totally amazing talent. He makes them sound the right size for him, you know. Eddie and I went up to uh, Aurelia, uh, Ontario, about yeah. a year and a half ago to see the guys play up there, and right. uh, and after the show, I you know we got together with the band and we were everybody was chatting about the performance and you know and everything Toto. But I cornered Simon and, and just asked him one question about engineering, and we were off into a one hour. Oh, yeah. Diatribe about engineering. Yeah, that's right. You ask Simon what time it is, and he'll tell you how to build a watch. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because I'm a Pro Tools engineer too. And, and you know it, what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I, so you I, guys must have had a ball. Oh, it was great. I mean, he and I were just off in a corner for an hour, and you know, oh yeah, forgot about what else, you know, everything else that was exactly going on. Exactly. <laughs> that whole other. You guys are like, you know, that's a that's a that's a whole club in itself. Pro Tools engineers. You know what that's I mean? right. The only guy you were missing was Steve McMillan. You know. Oh yeah, and he's <laughs> fabulous too. He yeah, engin- and he's like godfather here you know he even shows simon stuff that simon doesn't know, you know was this the first time you guys this this is the first time you've worked with him right no it is not uh we worked with him on uh through the looking glass record oh, okay and okay. he had done overdubs for us before vocals and stuff like that he'd worked with james newton howard and he'd worked with under ellie shiner and trevor uh, horn so he was i worked with him on a movie and he was just absolutely ridiculous yeah mm-hmm. and he's such a nice easygoing guy but he's always current he's always listening to current stuff and mm-hmm. uh and I just dig him. And uh, he has a good feel for Toto. He hangs in there. 
Yeah. We beat our engineers up a whole lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I we bet. hate that. Yes, we love it. No, we hate it. No, we hate it, and we love it. You know? Well, it, it pays off because I, you know, the last couple of your albums are, have been uh, yeah. nominated for Grammys for best. Yeah, engineer. I, I think especially the last album, this this Fib album, absolutely is probably next to Total Four my favorite Toto album here. I would agree. Well, with I was, yeah, I was going to mention that too. I, I, it's you know, just from a fan standpoint, I, I think it's so solid from front yeah, to back. Yeah, we really, we really went outside the uh, box here. And actually, we threw the box away here and unframed it totally. <laughs> I went back into Toto mode here, which is to go, listen, guys, I'm going to call Pankow from Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, we called Ian Anderson. Right. You know, we called Joseph Williams in. Right. And we just did stuff like that and, and you know, brought Phil and Gaines into the band, which just absolutely made it uh, so special to open that door, which I've always had a problem with, getting into the real R&B door mm-hmm. and just having a great another keyboard player. Toto's always been a two-keyboard band. That's the whole key to it. It's sure. like Procol Harum. Yeah. You know, and, and so having Phil and Gates, who in my estimation is the greatest combination, utility, keyboards, vocals, entertainment on the mm-hmm. face of the planet. I mean, he's just right up there Absolutely. with Kobe. He's like a franchise player like Kobe or Michael Jordan. Yeah. No question about it. And so his contribution was like, I made my job real easy. I was able to sit back and produce more. Because I was able to say, Greg, here's the kind of thing I hear. And he would go, oh, I know what you wanted. He'd sit down and play it better than me. Right. So I'd be in the booth with Simon, which is fun. That I like doing that. You know, I have no ego problem going, whoever plays it best, get out there and play it. And I'll just sit in here and just groove and, uh, and tell you when, uh, yeah, keep doing them, guys. Just like Rick Rubin. Yeah. Get out there. That's what Rick Rubin does. <laughs> he just sleeps <laughs> in the booth. And they come back in on Mick Jagger's album. They go, Rick, what do you think? He goes, get out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there there seems to be such an unselfish collaboration now. You know that no that Greg it. is on board and and so forth. But it's just more than hiring a keyboard. I mean, there's there's such a chemistry there as if he's always been there. And, and Dave, tell us a little bit about Esther. How did you pave that road to Greg and Greg get that road paved to you guys? How did that happen? I'll tell you exactly how that happened. First of all, we played with Greg. I met Greg 25 years ago. Sure, so I've exactly. Had sessions with him, and the bands played with him a whole lot. You know. And the band always acts like, well, you could, they don't even think about things like Greg Fillingans because obviously you could never get him. You know, so, <laughs> but every time I'd go to a party or Monterey Jazz Festival, yeah. he'd be in the lounge playing my songs and singing them. <laughs> I'd walk through the lounge and he'd play Miss Sun and yeah. he'd play uh, Georgie Porgy and he'd play Hold the Line. Well, I mean, he and, just saw you walk in and he just started yeah, playing them? Yeah, he just started playing it. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing, but play it perfectly and sing it. Wow. And so he keeps doing this and doing this. And I said, man, you know, this is stupid. You, uh, you know, would you ever think about going out with our band? And he'd say, like he said in two seconds. So I sold my band that. And they're like, yeah, right. He'll, he, he wouldn't go out with you. And if he does, he wants like a zillion dollars a week. Right. And I told them, no, guys. This guy wants to be part of Toto, and he's a band member. So they took him out. I was, I was trying to phase off the road here because I was, you know, trying to stay married here, which I've happily been for 21 <laughs> years and raised a uh-huh. daughter. So I just tried it out, and, and they loved him. And, uh, and this album here, his contribution was just... It's just so undeniable that uh, the band immediately made him a full member, you know? Yeah, it's almost it's that as easy, you know? A divine connectivity here because it's what you needed at the right time. It was what we needed. We needed a. He's our Billy Preston in the Beatles. Yeah, absolutely. He really is, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I say that in all respect because Billy Preston is absolutely both of our mentors, you know? And he passed too, and, and he's a, one of those spiritual brothers that, mm-hmm. that, we, uh, that taught me and Greg a lot, you know what I mean? Well, you know, that vibe comes out in the album. When you use the word, you know, that spiritual, and, and I'm not just referring to spiritual man, but, you know, there, there's something happening with that vibe of the, of the album yeah. that says, hey, there, there's something more here lyrically and musically, guys. There, there's something more, you know? Yeah. And that was, uh, that was not by accident, was it? No question. 
question. I think that this, and I'm glad you were able to uh, pick up on that, since uh, I think it was the first album where Toto has actually sat down and talked about, guys, what are we trying to say here as yeah. a group here? You know, before it was just like, this guy would write this song, this guy would write this song, and it was just like a bunch of solo recordings and putting them together, unless we were writing with Africa with Jeff sure. back in the old days, mm-hmm. or an instrumental. And we started thinking and trying to voice one, have a singular voice uh, from our band. So there was a lot of collaboration lyrically and musically on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were in there every day. I took immense amount of leeway writing lyrics. I just got into being a dedicated lyricist for the album, practically. Yeah, right. you know? On Spiritual Man, I was writing reams of stuff that was just coming out of me. And, it's, and all of a sudden, I become obsessed with it. It was sure. so much fun. Well, then that's, I couldn't write enough, and Bobby was writing, yeah. and Luke was writing stuff, and Mikey was adding stuff to it, and everybody was just kind of sitting around like good groups like Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles, mm-hmm. and all these great legendary groups like we heard that they used to do, you know what I mean? Well, that's not how music is written these days, is it? I mean, yeah, the collaboration days, I mean, we were talking to, to Lee Sklar in one of our previous uh, interviews, and he was saying, you know, the good old days of making music, it just isn't what it used to be. That's a yes and no, because a right. lot of that making music has moved to Nashville, yeah. so they kind mm-hmm. of do it the way that we did it out here. Mm-hmm. But out here, there was a time when, when really that's where the recording session was just like going into a club. Those were the performances, mm-hmm. and people were jamming, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All the best performances I heard were in recording studios with Leo Sayer, Joe Cocker, Aretha Franklin. I mean, everybody, it was like live music but that you're hearing for the first time. So mm-hmm. I think that's the attraction of people going out and playing live. Yeah. It's that live experience with people uh, responding to it immediately. Because you, they can't do that too much right now because everything's put on one at a time. Right. Maybe when Mariah Carey goes in and does a vocal, I'm sure she has an entourage there that applauds her. Exactly. Which they should. Uh, but, but certainly there's not a lot of that with Toto, so we miss the, the crowd. Mm-hmm. We used to have a ton of people in the studio making this stuff because it was like, you'd know immediately, is this happening or not? There would be full of musicians. Yeah. All the time, from Jim Keltner, Tom Scott. Yeah. I mean, everybody would come in and just, what do you think of our new stuff here? So we were bouncing off of it. And today, I think when they make stuff, because it's done with Pro Tools, you know, you put the drums on and you put this one, it's really hard to get a full reaction, you know what I mean, to uh, to the live thing. But kids, they manage to get around it. I'm sure it's, uh, it's all relative. I'm sure they, they bring a whole bunch of people to the studio and dance to it and do the same things we do, yeah. you know what I mean? So. Well, following in Sklar, between... Sklar is just an old, bitter bass player. <laughs> You hear that, Lee? too long, and he's got a pellet gun. He's probably going to shoot me. I saw him shoot a, a cup of coffee out of a producer's hand at close range with a pellet gun on a session because he didn't like the producer. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I, I don't even know him that well, but somehow that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I love you, Lee. <laughs> well, definitely falling in between. It's not only a wonderful album, but it is what me and Rick sort of called a, a zero skip factor because every song you want to hear it, you know? Yeah, well, that's what we set out to do with this record, so I appreciate it. And, yeah. Uh, oh, Roy Hargrove was the trumpet player's name. That's right, yeah. yeah. Great. We were talking about Toto, uh, you know, being out on the road. I think we are talking about Greg and joining the band. And, you know, the, the band just got back from a big tour overseas. And, and for personal reasons, you elected not to go out on this tour. And tell me how you felt about not touring with the guys this time out. Well, you know, uh, people have asked me, first of all, the reason I'm staying here is my sister has, is at UCLA right now, and she's awaiting as we speak the doctors to call in and tell her she's waiting a lung transplant. That's right. Right now, yeah. she's been waiting for like a couple of years, so she's now the next person on the list, so it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. That's why. And also, just like I said, my daughter's leaving for college in a month here, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes you got to stay back here and do that. Anyway, you know, people have like, God, doesn't it kill you to go out with Toto? You know, I've, guys, I've played 
with Toto, and I played music for so long, mm -hmm. like 35 years, you know, every day, live and breathe it, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I'm not on the road, I'm still at 8 o'clock at night, I'm warming up, doing my warm-ups in my head. I do that show in my head, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm with them wherever they are any time of day, you know. Sure. It's just easier here because I don't have to actually get out there and play this show. <laughs> it's a really hard show to play. So I mean, there's a ton of shit to remember. <laughs> you can't sleep during this show or blink. That's you know, right. I wish I was in the Stones or Bruce Springsteen, man. That's a cream fun gig. These are like playing with Yes and uh, and like Mahavishnu Orchestra. That's you know right. what I mean? <laughs> no, it's it's like it's like a bullet train chasing you all the time with Simon. You know, I understand that. But even though you're you're home now and you're with your family, do you still get a, a just an ounce of homesickness from being on the road? You bet, absolutely, no question about it. I mean, I just played with uh, Boss Skaggs at the Wiltern. Oh, cool! And uh, I played with him at Chumash Casino, and I've been doing a couple little sit-in gigs here. I did a thing with Vanilla Fudge reformed the other day for KLOS uh, with um, Cynthia Fox. Uh -huh. And just getting up on stage and having people applaud and being able to play the music on stage, I mean, there was like 125 people, and I felt like it was 12,000 people there. Wow, that's neat. So I really do... It's funny, you don't think you're going to miss it until you get away from it for a while here. And I go, mm -hmm. man, you know, I really... I'm remembering now how great, what a great gig it is. So when you hear people complain about it out there, it's not that bad a gig. You right. know what I mean? Sure. It's fun. So, yeah, I do miss it. And I really miss seeing our loyal fans, all their faces, and seeing the new people, too, because those people have been coming to our concerts for years. You sure. Know? And it's really, like I said, we wouldn't be touring without our fans. But to answer your question, I miss that electricity on stage. And we'd have a blast on stage, you know? Mm -hmm. That was my job, is to make everybody... Laugh and, to, and to, we were just cutting up all the time. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was a lot of fun. Well, I, I know that you're truly missed by the fans because on the Toto Network they talk about you a lot. Oh, and, that and, makes uh, me feel good because I don't uh, read too much. Every anytime I see something that gets uh, that has my name and I usually skip over it. I go, I don't want to read about me. Yeah, I do. It's have gotta a be bad. I go, it's got to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the band is back from uh, overseas and, and they've got a few dates coming up here on the West Coast, and I wanted to know if you were, had planned on on playing those since they were close to home. Actually, a funny story, you know, about people are asking me, uh, why are you playing with Boz Skaggs the Wiltern and not with Toto? And it's very easy. Boz Skaggs asked me to play with him. My band asked me not to play with him. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, we have to have a meeting here. Uh, this is a hard show, and, we, you know, we don't think that, uh, you know, you'll have the mindset. I said, guys, you mean like I, I won't know hold the line if I come up for the record? Are you guys serious? <laughs> You know, wow. okay, I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I forgot all the songs, so so I might pull a surprise appearance here. On there the you app. go. Yeah. Well, make sure it's walking with Suge Knight and, and going to Scott to be real or something. You know? well, make sure it's in Vegas because I'll, I'll be at that show. Will you be in Vegas? Yeah, I'll be out there. Maybe I'll pull it off in Vegas. You know? <laughs> <There> you, <go. laughs> you know, my wife knows David Copperfield. I'll have him come on and make those guys disappear. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. They're gone. I am here. There you go. Hey, listen, you, you brought up Boss Gags, and, yeah. and uh, you, you have such a rich history, you know, working with him back from, of course, the, the Silk Degrees days and so forth. And we can we can talk about that a little later. But, okay. you know, I want to talk about uh, your last project with him. And, oh, yeah. Man. And it was hey. one of the most phenomenal. I, I listen to it all the time. Hey, it's dig. so much, you know. It's dig. I was wondering if anybody listens to that out there because, it, yeah. you know, it was released during that infamous week. Yeah. And uh, But it is one of my favorite albums I've worked on. Yeah, I still it, put that on, and and it was such a great uh, experience working with Danny Cooch, first of all, yeah. who I learned a whole lot from, yeah. who I consider to be one of the great producers and helpful lyricists, and I'm glad, I'm so glad you like that. Yeah, it's going to be a classic, and, and your approach to that album is, I mean, you 
practically wrote on, on every cut, I believe, and you produced the, the piece for Boz. Yeah. And uh, but your your approach, I mean, it, it's it's very well engineered, but it sounds as if it, you just recorded it live. You follow me? Yeah, it, uh, that's the key. That's the trick. See, but you can't get that with a whole lot of players. That's Cooch and me, basically. Okay? Really, it was really fun because we started making demos of the stuff, and we were, you know, Boz is kind of he's really picky. We, who are we going to use for players? And he goes, I want to play all the guitars in this one. Yeah, right. So everybody else would say that, and I say, Hey, I can come from any school. I go, Fine. You know, and I said, let me play some keyboards. We can get this person, this person. Well, we started making demos, and then Cooch, they're touchy about it. They say, you know, we heard Danny Cooch. It's finally gets down to make the record, and they're like, I'm still auditioning now, I find out, you know, <laughs> that we're the record. <laughs> and they go, Danny Cooch has been recommended by the record company because he just did Billy Joel's big record. Right. Know, big Hoopla, whatever that record was. <laughs> uh, whatever that, uh, uh, what they call uh, <laughs> doo-bop record. That's what Cooch tells me. He goes, when you heard Hold the Line, he goes, that was just a doo-wop song. He goes, we hated you guys. You know, there you come with a doo-wop. And Cooch did a doo-wop record with Billy Joel. Anyway, he was the flavor of the month. Exactly. So they said, what do you think of Cooch? And I said, man, I insist on him. He's absolutely perfect for this, but I have to be with it. Him and me together would be perfect. Because mm-hmm. he plays guitar, and he, he thinks overall and he can make anything feel good you yeah. know he, he makes the best feeling demos with drum machines i ever heard and let me go on just about this for mm-hmm. one more second here so we're doing the demos and cooch says well, these aren't the demos these are the masters let's just fix that bass bar let's fix this here and we realized we already had like uh, four tracks we've just been demoing so cooch just came in there and says just transfer this stuff and put another bass on it and we'll start doing lead vocals on it so wow. that's what he brought to it to get this live thing happening and the more loose and live him and Boz were like cheerleaders in the studio mm-hmm. you'd play a performance they'd be screaming plotting jumping up and down and stuff you know yeah. you play something so and we used old vintage instruments here's the other key when you do pro tools because it's all a digital domain but we had all the oldest funkiest instruments mic'd mono and stuff like that you can possibly get so there's all these buzzes and hums and i mean there was one of the tracks that was it miss riddle i think it might have started i mean there's even like LP, vinyl, oh, yeah. little things, little, oh, little yeah, the scratch, texture, cooch, scratch man. stuff. And you threw that in there, and I'm like, man. It's weird, like all the rappers use it. Yeah, everything. Yeah. He gets these scratching records and these little synthesizers that sound really weird and everything like that. And, and that's what he does. He doesn't want to use anything modern and hip and new. Right. Like anti that shit. You know? Well, it worked. But one last question on this project, and we'll move on. But uh, specifically the horns. There was one guy... That you, I mean, instead of having Jerry Hay and, you know, the whole team and so forth, who played, uh, I can't, the name escapes me, but. That's Roy Hargrove. Roy oh, Hargrove. Right. That's where I got him from. He actually played every single horn part. Oh, yeah. And if you listen really closely to that album, I mean, you can hear and feel his breath on oh, your man. neck. Because he was. phenomenal. He was on, and man, again, it escapes me. Jenny Douglas turned me on. He had done, what's the guy, the solo artist came out. He was hip guy. He was a keyboard player. Uh-huh. And he just came out with a bang. And I forget his name right now because it's one word, and he and he always used to strip down, no no shirt all the time. Really? Real hit player, and I got his record. Was all I was listening to, and it yeah. had this guy Roy Hargrove yeah. on it. And I couldn't figure out, man, how is he voicing that stuff? And, and what are those? Are those saxes and flugels and, and saxes? Yeah. And he came in with one trumpet. And it was like this little kid. He looked like Ziggy Marley. Yeah. When he walked in with dreadlocks, and I go, you got to be kidding me! And he listens to it, and he, what he does is he plays a solo from top to bottom. And then he goes by, and every lick he plays, he orchestrates into five pieces. Yeah. Oh, it's it beautiful. The most amazing styles of arranging. And the guy's an educated uh, horn arranger, too. Uh-huh. But that's some of the most amazing parts you'll ever hear. And that's when I found him on uh, D'Angelo's, the name of the artist. Uh-huh, okay. I, I got okay. him off of D'Angelo. I follow you. And that loose record, and Boss heard that and flipped out. We said we want to make a D'Angelo record. Yeah. So 
So that's where that got influenced from. And then we brought him in, and I think it really uh, bossed them. They were trying to use other players. I was thinking Tom Scott. And we heard this. We said, well, let's go for this guy. And I think it made it stand out as a different kind of uh, record. You know? Well, it did. I mean, Miss Riddle, the horn parts on Miss Riddle are just oh, man, blow uh, yeah. you away. You know? Yeah, it's very nice stuff. And David, I want to go way back in time. And when you were growing up in Hollywood, yeah. you know, it almost seemed that you were destined for success in the music <laughs> business. Especially, yeah, it seemed like that way at the time. You know, I look back and man, I go like, man, how did we, how did we do all this stuff? We were, we had no fear because we were stupid, you know. Well, you know, your, your father was so connected, Marty. Yeah. You know, and he was in the business, and you know, he was so talented. And sure. I just want to know what was it like growing up in the Page household, and who were some of your musical influences? Oh man, it was it was heaven. It was actually heaven. Uh, my influences were a lot of drummers. Like when I was a kid, uh, my dad was hanging out with he used Shelly Mann on drums, so I uh-huh. sat next to him. Louis Belson used to come and have dinner with Pearl Bailey at our house, and Louis Belson was like the the drummer. You know what I mean? He gave me a bunch of drums and got me started. I was in a band with his son Tony, and uh, it would be like Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. Wow, was like Uncle Quincy. I mean, I thought I was like black. I thought I was black. <laughs> I was Uncle Quincy. You know? I didn't even know I was white because <laughs> it was just, it was Mahalia Jackson, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Quincy, and all that kind of stuff. My dad's from West Oakland, so it was just like you know. I thought we were like you know illegal aliens. <laughs> we were like there was just brothers and sisters in our house the whole time, you know. So it was great, and uh, my dad would work with Sammy Davis Jr. All his records. And there were so many musicians, you know what I mean? Uh, the Ray Brown, right. Shelly Mann. It was a lot of jazz. Uh, it was very much a jazz atmosphere until about 64, 65 when the Beatles came in. Uh-huh. And music started changing a little bit right in that area, mm-hmm. which then I got into you know other stuff. But I heard great rhythm sections play. Always live music, like with Ella Fitzgerald. My dad did a lot of her stuff. and we I'd go down there uh, and watch the whole band just record a whole album in one night with her singing. You know, wow. All these old cats here, Sweets Edison. Mm-hmm. I met Duke Ellington when I was six wow. and stuff. And my dad went down and arranged his stuff. And it's funny, because I'm working with um, high school jazz bands now. Mm-hmm. And the Calabasas Jazz Band just won the Duke Ellington, uh, came in second at Lincoln Center. And I played Satin Doll with them. So I've been passing the baton mm-hmm. down to these mm-hmm. kids, you know, touching Duke Ellington stuff. So it means a whole lot of different things to me now than just... I was just like a kid in a candy shop sitting next to drummers, but now I look at kids, and, and there's still kids playing jazz really good now, mm-hmm. 18 years old. And it's amazing, it's refreshing to see that. And it's, it's just like, uh, I've been very lucky, and I've had an awesome life. That's great. You know, a second ago you mentioned Shelly Mann. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he have a club called Shelly's Manhole? Shelly's Manhole. <laughs> Buddy, I used to go in the back, after my dad would do a session with Shelly, I was about eight or nine, man. Shelly would bring me in the back door through the alley. <laughs> you know, in there. You know, I was I was little little Marty, they used to call me, you know. That's great. And I would get to go, and Shelly's Manhole was the hip place, man. It was like equivalent <laughs> to like, I don't know, the Village Vanguard in New York, you know uh-huh. what I mean? That kind of thing, you know. It's like a blue note, but it doesn't exist anymore. But that's what Hollywood, Hollywood was smoking back then. Now, you mentioned earlier that you attended Grant High School out in Los Angeles. Okay, I didn't attend Grant. I just played there. I oh, okay. All, I went to an all-boys Catholic college prep called Chaminade out in the West Valley. I was the only guy that didn't go to Grant. Well, where was it that you eventually met the Picaros? That was when I was 13. Uh, my dad was doing the Glenn Campbell show. Mm-hmm. And Joe Percaro came out, and he, my dad was looking for a good tambourine player, percussionist, gospel mm-hmm. tambourine player. And Joe came in, and my dad says, you're hired. And they had just won this battle of the bands. I think it was like 69. I may have just turned 14. And Joe says, their keyboard player is gone, and you should try out for their group, you know. So I got into, you know, my parents, we didn't have a driver's license. My parents had to drive me to, you know, Jeff's. 
And, uh, <laughs> and I sat down. My audition was uh, the number one record was was Feeling All Right by Joe Conker. So I just sat on the piano, and they're like, can you play the Cocker intro? And I'm like, gee, I think so, guys. And I, like, carved it off, you know? <laughs> and they said, perfect, you're in the band. <laughs> and that's how we got together. And next thing I knew, I was over at the Ricardo's garage where they used to rehearse. Man, when I walked in, they were playing Soul Man by Sam and Dave, and then they played Hold On, I'm Coming. That's and I'm great. talking about these guys played it better than the record, okay? They had horns. <laughs> Jeff was playing, and this room was smoking. It was so hot. They were just kids, high school kids. It was ridiculous. I want to try and find some, if there's any tapes around of uh, uh, we were playing in those days, man. It was, it was so much fun. You, along with Jeff Percaro, started a band called Rural Still Life back in high school. Is that right? Well, him and I did. See, his band was, <laughs> their band, speaking of like, you know, the Valley, uh-huh. their band was called the Merciful Souls. Merciful Souls, okay, that's right. Jeff yeah. was in it. That was the band before I got in it. And they had, they had blue, purple Nehru jackets and played only James Brown music. Okay? How valley is that? Okay? So I get in the band and I start bringing in like Three Dog Night. I brought in Stones, the Rolling Stones. I brought in Creed's Clearwater. I brought in a whole bunch of stuff. They were doing Blood, Sweat, and Tears and Santana stuff. And then we, Tom Scott had an album, solo album called Rural Still Life. Okay. So we changed the name of the band to Rural Still Life. I love it. Okay, okay. And it became Still Life. And Jeff would draw all the uh, pamphlets. Jeff used to do all the promotion and marketing. He'd, he'd draw a thing in our class, print them up, and put them on all the cars in the parking lot. <laughs> He's the marketing guru, right? Yeah, he was an artist, Jeff. Like, I've oh, been yeah. reading these things on Jeff, you know. And people don't believe me. Jeff never had a set of drums in his room when he moved away. You never saw Jeff practicing or playing drums. He never had sticks in his house. Really? Like other drummers, they have, you know, sets of drums. Well, Jeff was always drawing. He wanted to be an artist. <laughs> That's interesting. Going back to Rural Still Life, did you guys just do covers, or did you guys ever do any original music? In, in what, Still Life? In Still Life, yeah. It was all covers. It was all covers? Yeah, we didn't do any original stuff. I think we maybe tried a couple of things, but uh, we, it was so early in our writing stages, and we were mainly a band for hire for doing dances, so we wouldn't, uh, you know, we'd do different versions. We'd do, like, Jumpin' Jack Flash and bring in some of the Mad Dogs and the Englishman players. But we were basically a Mad Dogs and Englishman band. Yeah. <laughs> slash, Santana slash Slime Slime the Family Stone. That was us. All different kinds of people on stage, horn sections. It was just like a big Slime the Family Stone band. So who were the members of the original band there on Unstill Life? It was uh, Gary Sherwood, who mm-hmm. Mike replaced not shortly after. Uh, so Mike became the bass player. Yeah. Scotty Page was mm-hmm. on trumpet. A guy named Steve Leeds was on tenor. He was like the band manager thing. Mm-hmm. And it was a guy named Frank Zabo, who still plays at the uh, L.A. Lakers games. A guy named Doug Wentz on trombone. And Scott Shelley, who's down in Australia doing uh, uh, the music for the alligator guy, Steve Irwin now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and me. And a guy named, it was a guy named Cliff uh, Gordon, who was a singer. And we eventually let him go. And they found this guy who had just gotten out of prison, this black guy named Frank Hayes. 25 years old. Now, dig it. We're 15, and we just and a half got our driver's permit. And we're going down into East L.A. at a house of pancakes, picking up a guy who just got out of prison, a singer, okay? And our parents are like, oh, where did you get this guy? And we're like, oh, he's like, uh, he's like works for the church, you know? <laughs> you know? And so this is our singer. And then we start doing things like Give Me Shelter and, and, and really hardcore Stone songs with this guy singing. Yeah. It, was like, it was like when you hear Tina Turner doing Stones and rock and roll stuff. That's what our band was like. So, Are there any hidden recordings anywhere about that? There are, and I'm going to trace them down. I think Steve Leeds has some, and I think his brother Andy wow. has some. you got to hear if there's any recordings of this. you got to hear these bands, <laughs> some of the bands. I don't know if Steve has any of us playing, but the second generation band, which was Lukather, Steve Percaro, yeah. and Michael Landown, those guys, they performed like the whole 
Yellow Brick Road album, and they just said <laughs> Luther and Landau sounded awesome together. You got to hear these guys playing when they were like fifteen. So David Hungate never really was in the. Oh, Hungate, when Jeff left mm-hmm. high school early to join Sonny and Cher on the road. Gotcha. Which they were huge at the time. David Hungate was the bass player. I got it. Dean Parks was the guitar player. Oh wow! And three months after Jeff joined, I joined uh, Sonny and Cher because Jeff recommended me, and my dad was. Uh, I played on a record for Sonny and Cher. So, so that was when me and Jeff and Hungate became a trio. Because Mike was still in high school. The only reason Mike wasn't in the band originally because he hadn't graduated high school yet. <laughs> okay? All these guys are really young. Mike's like a, a senior, and we split for the road. So it was like, Mike, uh, you know, when you finish school, we'll, uh, we'll deal with it. You know, Poor Mike. Finally, you know, Mike got out, and he's like, man, I want to be in the band. So like Hungate, after four years, he said, I don't want to do any more of the road. So we go, gee, Mike, Mike you're in. And I, I think I read somewhere one time that you guys, uh, and you and Jeff, when you were doing the uh, the Sunny and Cher gigs, you'd, you'd play a lot in Vegas. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, we're at the Sahara Hotel like six weeks, three times a year. I was the musical director. I even have a picture of my name on the marquee. Weren't you guys still in school during that time? Well, no, I was in school. I was going to USC okay. at the time. I was flying in like two days a week okay. after my three o'clock gig to go to my classes. <laughs> that was part of my deal. My parents, he's not quitting school to work in Vegas. I'm like, perfect, you know? I do, a, I do a 10 o'clock show, a one o'clock show, and at four in the morning, I fly it into LA, go to USC, yeah. a couple of classes, <laughs> right. come back, fly back to Vegas. Oh my god! o'clock show that night. You know? <laughs> I guess your typical school day. <laughs> typical school day, you know. Wow, that's amazing. That was we were just like you know kids today. They're like going to school. It's like what do you mean work and go to school at the same time? They don't understand that concept. <laughs> Having a job and going to school. Hey Dave, we want to thank you sincerely for uh, joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. And uh, tell you what, why don't we have you back real soon, and we'll do another uh, episode if you don't mind, uh, and we'll chat more about Jeff Barcaro. Okay, man. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Music Cast. See you next time. Thanks once again to David Page for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 